The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. How long is too long for a chief executive to stay in power? And what steps are being taken in Asia to regulate Bitcoin? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and my co-host is Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hello. So earlier this week, J.P. Morgan promoted two executives to roles mini-reckon, put one of them on track to take the reins from Chief Executive Jamie Dimon. But that's not happening anytime soon. Dimon and the board had agreed that he would stay on for another five more years. That'd mean he'd spend 17 years atop the lender. Anthony, as our resident bank watcher, what do you think about this decision? Well, I mean, you've you got to feel for the board. It's, it's, it's very difficult at the moment to say no to Jamie Dimon and, and to get rid of him. And actually, when I say get rid of him, I just mean, look, at what point should someone who's been in command for 12 years already be asked to step down? And he's been doing a good job, right? Um, with one big exception, yes. Um, but in general, I mean, he has created um, one of the best uh, investment banks in terms of revenue uh, and, and quite possibly other metrics as well. Um, it's one of the uh, best uh, retail banks in America, at least. Um, Chase. Chase has done a very good job of um, integrating all its systems. It's done a very good job of getting into uh, and using fintech. Um, the guy who runs that... Gordon Smith is one of the two people who's mm -hmm. been promoted to be co-chief operating officer and co-president, along with the head of the investment bank, Daniel Pinto. And Gordon Smith came from American Express, and he's introduced a, ver a, a number of things to try and improve um, Chase's um, credit card business, its payments business. And, you know, it's put Chase and JP Morgan on a very good path. Okay, so, but you, know, but you, you said he did one thing. Yes, Jamie Dimon did. Let's not forget, yes. He uh, has built two very good franchises, and I'm leaving out here, and I shouldn't, uh, that the rest of the business, asset management is a pretty good business as well, mm -hmm. um, and they've got good transaction management businesses. You know, th th it is a very good, solid firm. Um, and he got the bank through the crisis, uh, including buying Bear Stearns uh, and Washington Mutual, two firms which then later on cost the firm I think $13 billion in mortgage settlements, if not more than that. And that's a tough one to, to pin on him. I mean, does it show that they, over, they overdid the, uh, the, the acquisitions in 2008 and didn't think about the long-term legal risks? You could argue that, but I don't think anyone expected those kinds of fines to come through. Sure. And it's, it's a bit difficult to, to pin that on him and say, that's why you should go, although we did look at that at the time. So basically, if you, the London Well, you go back to 2012, this is when a trader in what is essentially J.P. Morgan's treasury department, so not the investment bank, but the, the part of the bank's meant to manage its assets and liabilities, basically uh, became too big in part of the credit derivatives market. Uh, and as a result, um, got too heavily invested. There wasn't enough, pe weren't enough people watching what this guy and his managers were doing. And it, in the end, cost the firm $6 billion uh, to get out of those positions. Uh, and it turned out that that was the one area where Jamie Dimon had a blind spot. He put too much faith in Ina Drew, who run the division, uh, to keep monitoring it. She had a few issues going on. I think she was out of the, out of, um, uh, the business for um, a couple of months at one point, so didn't have her eye completely on the ball. But I think it's, it became the blind spot. You know, everything's working fine, so you know um, there we go. But he, he got past that, including several votes, uh, consecutive um, shareholder meetings, 
uh, to try and remove him as chairman. Right. Um, so he's so let's step back here. He's both chairman and chief executive. Yes, and he has been since oh, I think 2006. He got both positions. Okay. He's been CEO, CEO since 2005. So around 40 percent of shareholders at the peak of the crisis uh, over the London Whale voted. Uh, for him to be stripped of the chairman's role. So, of course, he kept it. And they sorted out a few other things. They, they did a bit better job working out pay. Actually, they docked his pay uh, the f uh, for that year. Um, and as a result, yeah, he, he kind of he stepped back for a bit from a lot of the... Uh, he was a very big uh, 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 mouthpiece for uh, Wall Street uh, and, and regulation, saying, look, we're going too far. He took on Ben Bernanke in a press conference once. He stepped back a bit. And he's come back. He's a bit more measured. He also survived... Um, a cancer scare a couple of years ago. Um, so look, all in, you look at Jamie Dimon and you think, you don't want to say it's time for you to leave to this guy. I mean, it's, it's a difficult decision for the board to take. Well, okay, I get that. 12 years seems like a very long time to, to me. And maybe it isn't in the banking world, but I've seen this oh, in other is. industries yeah. where you have a chief executive who is doing great, has a great run for the most part. And, you know, wh what they risk is hanging on for another, in this case, maybe five years, maybe things don't go so great. Yeah. Maybe there's an economic Absolutely. downturn. Maybe there's another fat finger yeah, <laughs> somewhere. Exactly. I mean, that, that's, that's right. I mean, to an extent, you could argue, and I would sort of argue, that the London Whale was kind of the wake-up call for Jamie Dimon after, what, seven years in, in control, uh, to say, look, make sure you are looking at everything. Yes, you thought you were, you, you, I mean, okay, $6 billion was hardly a blip for JP Morgan's earnings. Okay, it depressed them. But you know, having a six billion loss in revenue, um, fine. They they cope with it. That's that's a testament to how good the bank had become. But also, I think it did make Diamond sit, sit back and go, okay, what am I getting wrong here? Am I getting too complacent? Um, so to some extent, as the board, you can argue, yeah, because of that, maybe. And I have no idea if this is their thinking, but because of that, we're not necessarily necessarily in the same position as some of the other companies. And you can look at them. You know, GE is one of the prime examples where Jeff Immelt was in control for actually 16-ish years before he left uh, last year. And he managed, you know, he had some troubles. Obviously, the financial crisis came along as well for, 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 for G Finance. Uh, but he got out of most of that business and did a very good job getting out of it uh, three, two or three years ago. But since he's left, markets have some of the businesses have created around him. They're now, uh, they've now got some accounting issues they've got to deal with. The stock has tanked. And you look back and you think, okay, a lot of that is because of Jeff Immel. So, you know, if you'd have left right after announcing G Capital uh, being uh, spun out and, and sold off. Brilliant. So let's, let's talk about the two executives that were um, elevated. I'm assuming they were elevated, right? Yeah, they're, they're heads of the investment bank okay. and the retail bank. They're staying in those positions, and they will be co-COOs co and co-presidents. That's usually seen as the, you know, the role at a lot of banks where you are being groomed to take over. So to me, and, and maybe you can give us some background on this, um, He's just now getting around to figuring out who could replace him? Ah, well, actually, this is the first time where um, you can kind of argue that J.P. Morgan is making it sort of clear. And forgive me for being a little bit opaque there, but the issue is that yeah, over the years, lots of people, I say lots, um, let's not overstate this, a number of senior executives have left because there's nowhere else for them but to go. But that's a danger of, of, I've seen this too Absolutely. in other, other yeah. companies, of a, of, a, of a CEO hanging around too long. Yeah, but I think what J.P. Morgan has done um, under Diamond is actually to promote properly down the chain. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an awful phrase to use. We have a deep bench. You know, J.P. Morgan uses it. Lots of companies use it. 
in this case, as much as, I, as much as I don't like the phrase, they do. And if you, you can look down, you can find various people in most of the organisations doing a very good job. They recently put a new person in charge of the commercial banking division, one of the smaller divisions, doing very well. Uh, they've got a great person in charge now of, uh, of retail banking, just uh, a, a step below... Um, Gordon Smith. So look, they do a very good job of that. But yes, they've lost a number of people. Uh, you know, Jess Staley now, Jess Staley now runs um, Barclays, um, for example. He used to run asset management and then the investment bank. And you've got plenty of examples like that if, if, you, if you look around. Um, but I mean, here's the thing. Yes, you've got a deep bench, but you don't want to discourage people for too long from doing that. And, and there is also the issue that, you know, as you said, if he stays around another five years, he could still have another London whale issue. I'm not saying it's going to happen, of course, but that could there could be something else. As you said, there could be a recession. And you know, at the very least, you know, if you're Jamie Dimon, don't you want to leave when you're on top? I mean, the, the past year has been great. Stock's gone up. Okay, tax cuts help. Um, you may now get a 14% return on equity this year, which is awesome. Again, tax cuts are doing a lot of that. Um, and you know, he sits atop a bank that is one of the best in the world um, and is pretty well positioned to go further. So why not go out on a high? Um, Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, um, from my perspective, I think unfortunately so many people in finance just don't want to leave. It's too much of a drug for them and, and not a bad drug necessarily, but so it keeps them in their jobs. So basically for his for peers, he's, he, this is kind of status quo. I mean, they just kind of hang on to these jobs. Yeah, but I think, you know, to, to go back to your to earlier question, um, this is the first time they kind of sort of um, said these are definitely, these seem to be the people in charge. And I say that because they, they, they announced Diamond staying for another five years at the, in the same release as they mentioned these two guys getting promoted. But we've had people in the president's role and the, co- and the CEO role before. Uh, and when they've left, JP Morgan's line has always been they weren't necessarily those in line. But we know who the successor is. If, you know, if Diamond gets hit by a bus tomorrow, we know who's taking over. And I, my guess at the moment, and has been for a while, it's probably Gordon Smith, who's 59 and in five years' time you probably wouldn't put him in charge of the bank long term. He's 59? He's 59. And how old is uh, Jamie Dimon? 61, I think. Okay. Daniel Pinto is 55. Um, The finance chief uh, is, uh, I think, 48. And she's a great up-and-comer. I think they'll probably want to put her in in running a business at some point. Marianne Lake, she's phenomenal. And they've got a few others. You know, the people running asset management, Mary Erdos, I think is 50. So it's not necessarily then these two. No, it doesn't have to be these two. But I think maybe they are beginning to think, look, Diamond's in his 60s now. We've got to think about being more open about the transition as opposed to, you know, having people who we know could take over and investors know could take over, but we're not really being open about it. Yeah, right. So I don't think they've failed to do it. I just think they haven't been willing to say it's definitely this or that person. And now we're kind of there, but... In five years' time, if he leaves in five years rather than a year or two or three, um, it could very easily be uh, Marianne Lake, the CFO, taking over. It could easily be Mariotto's. It could easily be um, one of Gordon Smith's retail banking lieutenants. Who knows? But, you know, 17 years is a long time and an institution will coalesce around a person who's in charge for that long, which means the next person in charge... If it makes if, it all the more difficult. Yeah. And if there's a recession in four or five years, then when the next person takes over, that makes it doubly hard for them. They've got to try and take over the reins of bank. They know, but there has been diamonds animal for almost 20 years. All right. Well, I know you'll be following this closely. Thanks for that, Anthony. The price of Bitcoin fell by around 25% in January, its worst monthly performance in years, leaving it worth almost half of its value in mid-December. The ultimate fate of the cryptocurrency remains unclear. 
Is it just a fad or can it become a major payment method? But regulators are taking notice and taking action. Let's head over to Hong Kong where our colleagues explain what steps the region's governments are taking. Hello everyone, I'm Pete Sweeney, Asia editor of Reuters Breaking Views here in Hong Kong and I'm joined by our finance tech China columnist Robin Mock. Um, welcome to the views room. Um, Robin, can you just start out by giving us a background? What is going on in Asia with Bitcoin and virtual currencies? Yeah, hi, Pete. So Bitcoin trading in Asia has become extremely popular. Um, so just based on the latest data, um, retail investors, so your stay-at-home mom-and-pop investors, account for almost um, you know half of the Bitcoin trading volumes um, in Japan and South Korea. So, you know, anyone with a smartphone and a bank account can just uh, sign up on an exchange and trade Bitcoin and other virtual currencies. So that has become extremely popular, um, particularly in these two countries. Um, and that's prompted quite a lot of uh, uh, regulatory backlash. So lots of uh, bureaucrats and, and the regulators are very concerned that, you know, this is very speculative. Um, there's a lot of uh, illegal activity like money laundering um, and such forth going on. So that's caused a lot of people to, to raise some red flags. What share of the global trade in Bitcoin is coming out of Asia at this point? I, I see like a huge proportion of transactions happening in Japanese yen, for example. Yeah, so Japanese yen is probably over 50 percent. Um, so the uh, yen to Bitcoin trades, it's, yeah, it's well over 50 percent of global trading volume. South Korea, it used to account for maybe 20 to 30. It's down to 10 percent now, but that's still a big share of the global trading market. Well, so what, so China has moved very strongly to ban, you know, not only the Bitcoin markets trading in a lot of ways, but have started shutting down the miners themselves. But well, not shutting them down, but making it more expensive to mine. Um, but there seems to be a diversity of regulatory responses underway. What's your yeah. assessment of who's who's making the right the right yeah, moves so, here? So that's right. So China has taken a very extreme uh, approach, which is just shut down the exchanges. Um, that has had some very unintended consequences. Um, so for one, it has pushed a lot of the trading to outside of the exchanges. Now, these exchanges, they allow people to buy, sell, and store Bitcoins. Um, and it's, it's largely been unregulated. Um, but China has just shut them down. So people in China now, when they want to buy and sell Bitcoin, they'll go to over-the-counter uh, venues. They'll do it through messaging apps. They'll even do it in person, usually uh, with cash or, you know, Alipay payment apps and, and things like that. So it's sort of pushed um, the Bitcoin market into more fringe, unregulated, uh, far riskier uh, areas. Um, on the other spectrum, on the other side of the spectrum is Japan, where they decided to actually let's just embrace Bitcoin trading and regulate it. So now in Japan, if you want to uh, trade on an exchange, you need to uh, submit, you know, very uh, strict ID checks. You need a bank account. Um, you know, there are certain restrictions that you can and can't do. The exchanges, they have to conduct uh, audits and anti-money laundering efforts. So that has actually encouraged quite a lot of people to invest in Bitcoin because it's more it's safer um, to some extent. Um, now, South Korea is quite interesting because it seems like they are torn between um, the two approaches. So earlier, South Korea said that they were going to regulate some of the exchanges. 
And they've started to do that. Um, so last week, they banned anonymous accounts. Uh, but there are some parts of uh, the government that are just calling for an outright ban. All right. Well, so I guess it begs the question of, you know, the Japanese approach is sort of sanitizing something that, that still appears profoundly volatile. And there's real questions of business utility. Why are these investors, why should these investors, you know, be led into this market, be be speculating in this area at all? I mean, what's, what's well, the... Well, the regulations, I mean, they're not meant to protect investors against volatile investments or bubbles. I mean, you know, the first step of the regulations is, you know, to prevent uh, money laundering and illegal activity. And then the second step would be more of a consumer protection, um, you know, type. And then the third would be just to you know, more macroprudential uh, measures in place. I mean, I don't think these regulations are supposed to be, um, you know, they're not moral. They're not trying to save people from themselves or anything like that. Was there an increasing use of of Bitcoin for legitimate transactions in Japan, for example? Can you? Yeah, so quite a lot of, um, so after the Japanese government um, embraced Bitcoin as payments and the the Bitcoin trading markets, uh, you have more merchants accepting Bitcoin now. So it is a form of payments in Japan. (laughs) Well, there you have it. Uh, Thanks so much for for chatting with us. And uh, thanks for listening, folks. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Pete. That's our show for this week. Uh, I'd like to also thank our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.